open to Daniel chapter 9 this morning. Trying to work out a few kinks here. There we go. All right, we're good to go here. This morning we're going to get into Daniel chapter 9. And in doing so, we're going to be discussing the topic of prayer. It's told if you want to make people uneasy in church, you preach on praying or giving, and one of those two is for sure going to bring a lot of heat. But this morning, um, in discussing prayer, we're going to be very specific in talking about Daniel's prayer that we are going to see in chapter 9 of his book. Now, you may remember back in chapter 6, it was Daniel's praying that got him into some trouble. It got him tossed into the lion's den. In chapter 6, we saw Daniel get elevated by God in the eyes of King Darius, so much so that in chapter 6, verse 3, it says that the the king had planned to set Daniel over the entire kingdom. Well... You perhaps also remember that the other two commissioners, there was a total of three, the other two commissioners and then the satraps, uh, the governing officials, uh, set out to, uh, to bring Daniel down. And they quickly determined that the only way they were going to be successful in bringing Daniel down in the king's eyes was to get Daniel, to have Daniel uh, violate himself with regard to one of the king's rules. And so those two commissioners and those satraps, they tricked the king into signing a 30-day injunction that any person who seeks to make a petition to any god or man besides the king was to be cast into the lion's den. And because they already knew that such an injunction would be an impossibility for Daniel, they set out to deceive and trick the king. You see, they... They had already spied out Daniel's life, and they knew that it was Daniel's custom to pray three times daily with his windows opened toward Jerusalem. And we see all of these things laid out very plainly in chapter 6. We see there in verses 10 and 11, it said that when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so after Daniel already came to the recognition that this was in play, It says that he just immediately, well not immediately, but it says that he entered his house and he continued kneeling three times daily, praying and giving thanks to before his God as he had been doing previously. So rather than taking a 30-day hiatus in prayer, thinking, well, perhaps if I just don't pray for 30 days or perhaps if I close the windows, no one would be able to see in. Daniel just went on business as usual, and so then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. So you could say, again, it was Daniel's prayer life that got him cast into the lion's den. Now, doesn't that seem backwards? We're always told if we want to keep ourselves out of trouble, what do we do? We, we pray. Here, here Daniel finds himself praying and getting himself thrown into greater troubles. So, no matter how that works out, one of the things we know definitively in the Word of God is that God wants His people making prayer, supplications, and petitions before Him. Amen? And so, if your praying causes you to find yourselves in a greater situation of harm, then pray. And if your praying keeps you out of harm, then pray. At the end of the day, we need to be those who are found praying. Amen? just like Daniel. And we see this very clearly in Daniel 9, and in particular, we're also going to see in Daniel 9 how Daniel is seeking the Lord in prayer on behalf of his fellow Judean captives, those who had been taken captive into Babylon. So we see Daniel not just praying for himself personally, but we see Daniel here praying for his brethren corporately which is something that we need to be about as well. Listen to Spurgeon on the importance of praying corporately for one another. Spurgeon said, I have often spoken to my congregation on the importance of prayer, especially desiring to stir up the members to pray for me and for the Lord's work in our church. 
Truly, I do not think I've had a more weight, weightily subject or one that weighs more upon my soul. If I were only allowed to offer one request from church members, it would be this. Brethren, pray for us. 2 Thess 3.1 Of what use can our ministry be without the divine blessing, and how can we expect the divine blessing unless it is sought for by the church of God? I would say it even with tears. Brethren, pray for us. Do not restrain prayer. On the contrary, be abundant in intercession. For only through prayer can the prosperity of a church be increased or even maintained. And so my admonition to each of us is, as it says, brethren, pray for us. That we take this us here in the corporate sense of us, the church, and that we find ourselves corporately when we enter into our time of prayer with the Lord as we perhaps are praying without ceasing and driving from one location to the next, whatever it might be, to be mindful of your brothers and sisters even here at Jing's Bible and that God would bless us and prosper us in Christ Jesus, that we could be victorious because there is what victory in Jesus as we were singing this morning right but the tempter comes to, to steal kill and destroy and temptations are fresh and anew every single day are they not and so we need to be mindful to be praying for one another and that doesn't mean perhaps you need to pray for every individual by name on every single day perhaps if you did that, you would do nothing but pray, and it's not that that's a bad idea. But perhaps you could just say, and Lord Jesus, on behalf of my brothers and sisters at Jing's Bible Church, I pray, and then let your supplications, the petitions be known to God on behalf of your brothers and sisters at church. Amen? And then when there's particular needs within the body, pray for those particular needs as well. But we see Daniel praying corporately for his brethren, those Judeans, again, who were taken captive into Babylon. Now let's Let's look at this together in chapter 9, verse 1. Look at the beginning. We have here a historical setting. It said, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. So, in verse 1, chronologically speaking, we know that the Medo-Persians have now overthrown Babylon. So, we are now into chapter, after chapter 4, into chapter 5, the Medes and the Persians have overtaken the Babylonian kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar's rule, all of that is over. And so what we know is that Daniel is here at this time in his life. He's an old man. Possibly in his mid-80s uh, or perhaps even a little beyond. And we know that from chapter 6, one of the things we learned about Daniel as an older man in chapter 6 was that he was still distinguishing himself as an old man who was faithful, available, teachable, and thus useful for service to his Lord. And this is why he was made one of the commissioners and the other two commissioners and satraps sought to bring him down because God was elevating him so quickly. Daniel was useful to God. He was faithful, available, and teachable. And here again we see Daniel in his old age doing the same. He's faithful, available, teachable. He's useful. And we see that Daniel is still a, an old man with his nose in the books. Look at verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books. And we're going to see that this reference to the books is a reference to the Bible. The word of the Lord to Jeremiah. Daniel observed in the books, which lets us know that as an older man, Daniel was doing what? He was reading the word of God. Daniel was still, as an older man, increasing in his knowledge in the Word of God. He didn't rest on his laurels from his younger days when he had memorized most of the Word of God. If you remember back in chapter 1, one of the things we learned about Daniel was what? As a young lad, probably 11 to 14 years of age, he was unwilling to defile himself with the king's choice food from the king's table. Well, how would Daniel have known that anything from the king's table would have been a defilement to him? Well, because Daniel was a young man who understood the word of God. Daniel had invested himself 
in knowing God's word. That could be attributed to his mom and his dad and their faithfulness to discipling this young man and getting his nose in the book. But we see even here as an old man, Daniel has not left the ways of his youth. He's observing in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So Daniel is making an observation from the prophet Jeremiah that God gave revelation of the numbers of years that the desolation of Jerusalem and thus the reason they were put into captivity in Babylon to begin with, how long that would be. And he's reminded there with his nose in the book that it was predicted it was going to be a period of 70 years. Now I want to quickly, as quickly as I can, show you some lengthy texts, but we're going to read through them quickly because it says books plural. And so Jeremiah gets particularly mentioned here, but books, what books, and there's two places in particular that I want to show you where Daniel had his nose in the books. One would be Second Chronicles 36, 14 through 16. So just follow along with me here. It's a little bit lengthy, but you, you'll manage, uh, I believe. Notice this. Furthermore, all the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. Now, as we're reading along the way through this passage in Second Chronicles, and when we get to Jeremiah 25, make observation of the things that are stated here that the prophets are saying to the nation, and then you're going to make a connection with what the prophets were saying to the nation all the way back then to Daniel's prayer and his observation and his recognition of the very ways in which they failed to be faithful to the Lord their God. He's going to bring these very things particularly back in. The people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations and they defiled the house of the Lord which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. These are called prophets because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. So what do we see here? We see a God who's faithful and compassionate. So they were very unfaithful following after abominations, defiling the house, the temple of God, but the Lord their God sent them prophets because he had compassion on his people. He didn't just immediately zap them from heaven and scourge them off the land. He's compassionate. He sends them messengers and he's pleading with them. But, verse 16, they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men. Notice how sin has consequences, and sometimes very severe consequences. But never forget that these consequences didn't come before the compassion of God had pleaded with them on many occasions to listen to the prophets, to listen to the very word of God, to repent and to return to the ways of God. But they would not. There are consequences to sin. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young in the sword, with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old or infirmed. He gave them all into his hand. All the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his officials, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem <clears throat> and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. Those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, Daniel being one of those. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. And notice verse 21. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, 
Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, and let him go up. So this was one of the books that Daniel's nose was in as Daniel was reading about the time, those 70 years, and for them to be complete. And we see right here in 2 Chronicles 36, 21, all the days of its desolation, all the days of the desolation of Jerusalem, all that time that the Judeans were put into Babylonian captivity, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were completed. And 70 years were the number of years that were, were ordained by God for the nation of Israel to be in captivity in Babylon. For every Sabbath cycle that the nation of Israel disobeyed God, sinned against God, and did not keep the Sabbath cycle, God sent them into captivity for one year. That means for 70 Sabbath cycles, they had violated God. For 70 Sabbath cycles, which is a period of 490 years, God was sending prophets to the nation, pleading with them to turn back to the word of God, and they would not relent. They did as they pleased according to their own evil desires. And then after that period, then God sent in his servant, Nebuchadnezzar. And for 70 years, his people were in captivity. Now notice Jeremiah 25. This is the prophet that Daniel particularly made mention of. It says the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And the Lord has sent, this is verse 4 now, and the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened or, nor inclined your ear to hear, saying, Turn now every one from his evil way and from the evil of your deeds and dwell on the land which the Lord has given to you and your forefathers forever and ever. Verse 6, and do not go after other gods to serve them and to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Yet, verse 7, you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, in order that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And then jumping over to verse 11, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So here again, we have a word of revelation from God to these prophets of the length of time of captivity. And we saw in these two passages uh, some of the reasons for their captivity. One was the stubbornness of their heart and their unwillingness to repent. That would be their continued idolatry. And second, we see that they failed to give the land 70 sabbatical years of rest. And so for each one of those years, a sabbatical year would be a seven-year period. And we're going to read about that briefly here in the book of Leviticus, which will help us make a little bit more, um, a, a greater understanding of this idea of the Sabbath rests and... Um, we're particularly going to be picking up on this theme next week when we continue in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 20. But notice this from the book of Leviticus. This is a little, um, a little um, um, insight for those of us who haven't read much on the Sabbaths recently. Anybody been in Leviticus recently? Thank you, I see that hand. <clears throat> he can repent for that for later. I'm just kidding. Leviticus 25, 1 to 3. <clears throat> the Lord then spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land which I shall give you, then the land shall have a Sabbath to the Lord. So the land itself was to have a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you shall plow your field, and six years you shall prune your vines and gather its crop. But during the seventh year 
which completes a cycle. Seven years makes one cycle. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath. Rest. A Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. In verse 5, your harvests after growth you shall not reap. And your grapes of untrimmed vines you shall not gather. The land shall have a sabbatical year, which would be the seventh year, every seventh year. All of you shall have the Sabbath products of the land for food, yourself and your male and female slaves and your hired man and your foreign residents, those who live as aliens with you. Even your cattle and the animals that are in your land shall have all its crops to eat. You are also to count off seven, seven Sabbaths of, ye, of years for yourself. <clears throat> so here he's, he's moving into something a little bit different, building off of that idea of the Sabbath being every seven years. You are to count off seven Sabbaths. So if a Sabbath takes place every seven years... If you count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, that's what? That's seven times seven years, which would be 49 years. Seven times seven, if I'm doing math right, is still 49. This is going to come into play when we get to Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27. So you might want to go back and look at some of this Leviticus stuff and Sabbaths and the year of Jubilee and such. Seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. Hey, my math was right. By divine revelation. You shall then sound a ram's horn on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year. So you got the seven times seven, you got seven Sabbaths of years. Seven times seven, 49 years. And so every seven year, they're observing a Sabbath rest for the land. They're not plowing their land, they're just letting it overgrow, and they're just taking the produce from the land as it, as it comes up. They're not working the land at all, they're giving the land a Sabbath, a Sabbath. And they do that every seventh year. And they do that for seven cycles, seven times. So seven times seven years, seven cycles, 49 years. And then on the 50th year, which would be the first year of the next cycle, right? Because after 49 years, you begin the year one of the next seven-year cycle. So after seven cycles, on the first year of that next seven years is a 50th year. And on the 50th year, you're to proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. <clears throat> it shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow, nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vine. So on that 50th year, which will be the first year of the next seven, seven, that next seven years of cycles of a, of a Sabbath cycle, on that 50th year, you're also going to have a time when there's no sowing. So on that 49th year and on that 50th year, you would have two years where the land is left fallow. You're, you're not working the land. You're giving it a Sabbath. And on that 50th year, <clears throat> that's referred to as the year of Jubilee. Now, the year of Jubilee, I'm not going to get into that too deeply yet, but the year of Jubilee is a time, as it says right here, a time of proclamation of a release through the land. It's a time that if any of the children of the nation of Israel had fallen in debt to any of their brothers for whatever purpose or for whatever cause, when the year of Jubilee came around, all that debt was released and forgiven. And it wasn't necessarily forgiven in the sense of, you don't owe me anymore. They were completely paid back. So the way they worked this was if, if uh, Matt here fell in debt to me, however much he owed me, I would then have access to, to, uh, to, to manage his land 
and all the produce and all the crops that came from his land became mine. And so we would calculate the number of years left until the year of Jubilee because I knew at the time of the year of Jubilee, I knew that he would be set free. There was a time of releasing and his property that I'm getting to use as my property goes back to being his property again at the year of Jubilee. So I would calculate how much Matt owes me and then from there until that time of the year of Jubilee, I would make certain that I gathered enough crops off of Matt's property and off of his land to pay me back appropriately for the debt that he owed me. Does that make sense? If not, we need to do a little more study on the year of Jubilee, but that's not the purpose of this morning. But I am broadening your perspective on it because this concept is going to become particularly interesting for us when we get to the latter part of Daniel chapter 9. And the year of Jubilee... Because there, there came within the nation of Israel, especially through the, the years of silence, there came this somewhat, um, this idea of like an eschatologic hope of a year of jubilee, <clears throat> when God would um, send a Messiah, and that Messiah would be one that would uh, kind of send relief, a release, if you will, to these, the captive nation of Israel and would reestablish the nation of Israel. And that's kind of a motif that you see played out through some of the teachings of the prophets. And interestingly enough, when Jesus <clears throat> was in the temple, it says that he took a Bible and he opened it up to the book of Isaiah. And he reads from the book of Isaiah. And we're going to get to this next week. That's, not, that's why I'm not giving you all the details right now. I'm kind of wetting your whistle. And he reads from the book of Isaiah, and he, and, he, and he stops at a certain point, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he's making a reference to a jubilee, and that he himself is the great jubilee who's come to set captives free. We'll get there in the next couple of weeks to come, but if that's not enough to wet your whistle to get you back, then nothing will, okay? Because this is some good stuff. And Daniel had his nose in the books, and he was reading, and he wanted to know, and he started making observations, and he started calculating the years. When did I get here? How long have I been in captivity? And he started doing the math, which is pretty simple math, and Daniel started coming to the conclusion, you know what? I think that the time has come, perhaps, and we need to start preparing ourselves to get out of this place. I don't know how, and I don't know when, but God's about to do something to get us, his people, out of captivity and back to our promised land. And so Daniel then gives himself over to prayer. Okay? Look at verse 3 of Daniel chapter 9. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer. I've got my nose in the books. I've done the calculations. I've done the math. The time it has arrived. Daniel turns himself and seeks the Lord by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, all of these uh, with, with fasting, with, with sackcloth, with ashes, each one of these is, it seems to be here as a way to let the reader understand the, the significance, the earnestness, the seriousness with which Daniel was taking this corporate prayer that he's about to endeavor himself on in seeking the Lord. It seems that Daniel almost immediately ceased from the, the consumption of foods. Perhaps that was his fasting. Sackcloth would be like a sackcloth you'd throw potatoes in. It'd be a very uncomfortable material. And those there, there was a, a practice of putting on sackcloth and, and, and putting on ashes as a way of really keeping a, a person focused on the need for which they were in prayer. Have you, have you ever by any chance gone to the Lord in prayer in your comfortable nighty robe, <clears throat> in your comfortable nighty robe, and you start to pray, and the next thing you know, you find yourself dozing off? Well, if that's one of your problems, go to the local store and buy some sackcloth. And when you get up in the morning and you go to your prayer cloth, take off your, knife, your nice fluffy little robe and all and throw that sackcloth on and wear sackcloth and then go to your place of prayer. And I can promise you, you won't doze off to sleep. 
there will be an uncomfortableness with which in wearing that, that it will keep you alert. It should, and, and maybe you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to just be alert to the fact that I'm uncomfortable. But if you're focused like Daniel was here, because there's something big here that Daniel is in prayer over. He wasn't just praying for Aunt Susie's ingrown toenail. He's praying for some pretty big things here, as we need to be praying as a church as well, for the conversion of, of lost souls. Just throw on some sackcloth in the morning, and I guarantee you won't fall asleep. Ashes, a sign of mourning, a sign of sorrowfulness of soul, a sign of need before God. Daniel is clearly taking himself in this time of prayer on behalf of his people extremely, extremely seriously. And this is how we ought to pray as well. Look at verses 4 and 5. We're going to see this great confession. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Notice when Daniel goes into corporate prayer with his brothers and sisters, he's not saying, man, all those sorry sacks of people have sinned. Daniel throws himself right in there with him. Daniel's not inferring in any way that he's sinless. Now, when we read Daniel's life, we think, man, Daniel's amazing, right? But there is only one truly amazing one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ who was sinless. Daniel says, we have sinned, verse 5, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Here in verse 4, we see Daniel beginning this prayer. By seeking and speaking of God's his power, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, notice, the great and awesome God. He's referring to just the greatness and the, the uh, amazingness of God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Daniel starts his prayer by reminding God, of telling God what God already knows about God, and that, that is that he is great, that he's awesome, he's a covenant-keeping God, and he's full of loving kindness. Reminded me a little bit of how Jesus, in teaching his disciples how to pray, when he said, begin this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And to hallow the name of God seems to be something like what Daniel's doing. You are great, you're awesome, you're a covenant-keeping God who's full of loving kindness for those who are His and keep His commandments. Seems that's a great way to hallow the name of God, of recognizing His greatness. And Daniel does this. Now, I've got another really good quote from Spurgeon on prayer and the posturing that one ought to have when going into prayer before God. <clears throat> Spurgeon writes, My heart, be sure that you prostrate yourself in such a presence. If he is so great, place your mouth in the dust before him. For he is the most powerful of all kings. His throne has sway in all worlds. Heaven obeys him cheerfully, hell trembles at his frown, and the earth is constrained to yield him worship, willingly or unwillingly. His power can create or destroy. My soul, be sure that when you draw near to the omnipotent, who is as a consuming fire, put your shoes off from your feet and worship him with lowliest humility. Familiarity there may be, but let it not be unhallowed. Boldness there should be, but let it not be impertinent. You are still on earth, and he in heaven. Isn't that good? So when you go to God in prayer, make sure you're recognizing his greatness, his power, his faithfulness, his complete holiness. God doesn't mind when we tell him things he already knows that are true about himself. And it seems to set our hearts in a right place. That he is in heaven and we are still 
on earth. The psalmist said in Psalm 24, 3 and 4, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Far too often, rather than coming in weakness and with clean hands and pure heart, we oftentimes find ourselves coming in a hurry. Rushing into the presence of the Lord and rushing out. Lord God, by your Spirit, might you teach us all still how to be still and know that you and you alone are God. Amen. Lord, we need your help in our prayer lives indeed. Now from verses 6 down through verse 14, we're going to see Daniel's confession of the sins of his people. Daniel's prayer, again, is a prayer of confession for sin, for himself, for the nation of Israel. We saw he collectively, he said we, he put himself in with them. And sin, biblically, has a very simple idea. It's the idea of just missing a mark. That God has established a standard of what holiness is and we miss that standard we miss that mark and in missing that mark we sin against God confession is simply an admission to that an admission that we miss the mark calling sin what it is calling it sin I made mention a couple weeks ago our culture is is transitioning the word sin into disease every sin that we can almost find in the Bible these days is actually now a disease if you're a thief, you have, the, you have some kind of a disease. It's now a mental illness. Everything is now a mental illness. It's a disease that either needs medication or it needs affirmation through a judicial body to tell the rest of us to stay quiet and to let it alone. Sin is missing the mark of God. And let me tell you, there's, there's no better news than the recognition that there is sin in the world. And why is that good news? Because it lets us know that there is a standard higher than that. The very fact that our conscience pangs us over not meeting a mark tunes us into the divine. Because that which is known about God is evident within us, for God made it evident to us. He put the knowledge of God within our heart, within our conscience. And so when we recognize that we're sinning, we know that we can cry out to God and we confess, and this is what Daniel's going to be doing for his people. And John, in 1 John 1, 9, tells us that if we confess our sin, that God's faithful, he's righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is why we need to make this a daily practice. Sometimes I'm afraid we get to the end of a day and we rarely give much consideration to, to, to the fact of, have, did we miss a mark in any way, form, or shape, or fashion today at all? And it's not that we're to be obsessive over that, but when we're not obsessive to the fact that we sin against God, we lose sight of the holiness of God, and we don't come to prayer saying, God, you're great and awesome and mighty and all-powerful. Loving kindness is yours. You're a covenant-keeping God. We fail to do these things because, kind of like the frog in the kettle, and we, the further we get away from the recognition of who he is, the more comfortable we become with who we really are. In verse 6, we're going to see a very clear admission to the sin of arrogance and pride. Something that's core to all of us. Moreover, he says in verse 6, We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. You remember when we read through Second Chronicles and Jeremiah? What did it say? We know for 490 years that God sent messengers. He called them prophets because that's what they were. And... We, our people, have not listened. We haven't listened. Daniel, you might say, has an eye for the obvious. He reads, he makes observations. And that's a good, th that's a good thing to do. 
Daniel, Daniel's quick at, at connecting um, their sinfulness to the very explanation and the reason for their plight, the reason why they are where they are. Their hearts were calloused. Their ears were thus closed to the, to the word of God. From kings to commoners alike, all had disobeyed. None had listened to the word of God that were sent to him by his prophets. And if you think about it, one of the most arrogant things that we as people can do is to actually have a divine word from God and then to treat it with such great indifference. It's one of the greatest acts of pride to assume that we can live on bread alone in accordance with our own plans when God has sent us plans. Yet in many ways, in each of our lives, we have areas where our ears too are perhaps closed, even down to this very day. So this morning, I want you to exercise your brain by trying to identify at least two areas in your life that you know that you have perhaps closed ears to the Lord's voice, to the Word of God, His voice in His Word to your life. Two areas in your life where you could easily identify that your actions and God's Word, His voice, seem to be in constant contradiction or strain. Now, all you need to do to discover this, because I just have this feeling that some of us are perhaps going, well, I, I don't know, I've never really thought about that. So, an easy way perhaps to discover two areas in your life where there's uh, a need for this is if you just pay attention, and if you find an area in your life where there's tension, strife, disputes, I'm getting this list from the New Testament, by the way, factions, Disappointments, frustrations, and anger, fractured relationships, whether husband to wife, parent to child, friend to friend, brother to brother, sister to sister. And at that point of intersection, either you or someone in your life or both of you have closed your ears to the words and ways of God and have instead decided that you can make life work best without obeying Him at that precise point. So again, I want you to identify at least two of those areas in your life and to do as Daniel did in verses 4 and 5 and confess those as missing the mark. Confess those as sin. Now, I'm not saying to do that out loud and publicly right now. That's a great place to do that in life group, right? When you get in life group and you get in a smaller group and you build some community and you get together and you get you might say, hey, here's some areas where I'm really struggling. I got some sin, and you get some accountability. But right now, let's just kind of keep it, keep it tight to the chest. Just between you and God, confess your sins, the specific ones that you know of and can think of and that you want to yield back underneath his lordship before you leave the Lord's service here today. Unless we think that that's not a worthy exercise for us to undergo, let me now show you what unconfessed sin, what the closing of your ears to the Lord's voice could possibly lead to in your life in a different context, obviously. This isn't your context. This is their context, but in a different context. But nonetheless, notice verses 7 and 8. It says, Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. But to us, open shame. As it is this day to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Very plainly, the result of ignoring and ultimately rejecting the word of God, of having closed ears, was and still is open shame, meaning personal and or public humility to every man, woman, boy, and 
girl. We see marriages breaking apart, so-called Christian marriages breaking apart before our very eyes. Therein is an open shame of such that's truly unspeakable. Because the mystery between a man and a woman is that which is defining Christ with his church, the Apostle Paul tells us. And because he and or she and or they together had closed ears to the word of God as it spoke into their lives. And then when that's broken, the adversary has won that one. He's been trying to steal, kill, and destroy and break apart marriages from the garden. And it's open shame to the body of Christ, to those who name Christ, not just to yourselves individually. It hurts the body. Sin leads to death. It's not something to trifle with. It's not something we sweep under the rug and we, and we make easy about. We cannot afford to ignore the word of God in our life today as it was in any day. Think of the, the numbers of Christian relationships that are a complete mess simply because of closed ears, unwillingness to submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ in those specific places of life. It's countless. We still feel the pain of open shame when we think of a brother like Ravi Zacharias who even after his death, truth came out about sin. It became open shame to the Christian community at large. Let me tell you, the word of God is clear from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Your sin will find you out. We can run, but we cannot hide. And we even may run for a 10 to 15 year period of time, and we may think that we've even outran the, the, the mighty hand and justice of God, the meeting out of that what was done in darkness will come to light. Allow one like a Ravi Zacharias to be a stern reminder to all of us that even in our death, deeds of darkness can come creeping out into the light. And it becomes open shame to the body of Christ. Listen, if we fail to understand that sin has consequences and devastating consequences at that, we have perhaps started listening to the voice of the adversary who's trying to numb us down to think that sin really isn't that big of a deal. It's a huge deal. We are sinning against the only true and living God, the holiest being that there's ever been, the only uncreated being in all the universe, the one who spoke in all the galaxies that we see leapt into existence. He was the original cause of all things. In him is the power that brought about everything. And in him is light and life and salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. And he, and he came to earth to show the way. Daniel's prayer reminds us that sin and sin before God and God Almighty is a very serious thing indeed. And let's make certain that we keep that frame of heart and frame of mind as well. Amen? Now in verses 9 and 10 where we're going to pick up next week, and man, I really wanted to keep going. I needed, Matt, I needed to get all the way down through verse 19 today. That's what I needed to do, but I didn't. Ryan, are you okay with that? Man. You know, we've had a lot of technical stuff in Daniel 7, 8, right? And all of a sudden, we're getting to, we're getting to a place where there's a lot of preaching going on with Daniel. Kind of like back in chapter 1. Aren't you liking that? Don't you love that warm feeling of conviction, of soul? <laughs> Whew, man, I, hey, you've only had to endure it for about 30 minutes now. I've been, I've been dealing with this for an entire week. Man, it's like a, a rasping on my soul day after day, reminding me of my need of the Lord. Reminded me of my need of the reality that there's a tempter out there who's, who's flaming darts and arrows and missiles. They never stop coming. And the need to have up the shield of faith. The need to be able to wield the sword of the Spirit in true spiritual battle because it's what it is. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. 
But the adversary deceives us and he makes us think it's against flesh and blood. It's against this person or this person. It's against the spiritual rulers in dark places. These flaming arrows. The deception of the devil that's leading people to do stupid stuff. And to sin. And to break relationship. And so what do we need to do? On behalf of such people, on behalf of the body of Christ, we need to pray. And might this be a good, fresh reminder to all of us here today, the need to include the body of Christ in your prayers on a daily basis. Every single person that's here this morning and those that aren't with us this morning They're of human flesh just like you, and the adversary tempts them every single day just like you. You know how to pray for them because it's how you pray for yourself. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing. So we're going to pick back up here in verse 9 and 10 next week. And Daniel's going to remind us that God's the only righteous one and that God's a covenant-keeping God. And this is a very rich section in Daniel's prayer that he speaks this truth back to God and it reminds us of some very core fundamental truths that take us all the way back to the book of Genesis of God being a covenant-keeping, faithful God. God swears by himself that he will accomplish something and nothing can thwart his hands. Amen? That's the mighty God that we serve. But church, listen. We don't need to fall under the, that, the, the, uh, the false understanding that since he's sovereign and he's got everything in his hands, we don't need to do anything. We don't need to share our faith. We don't need to pray. He's got it all. It's going to work out his, uh, according to his plans anyways, right? And that's where we need to, be un- to understand the beautiful tension of the sovereignty of God and the mannishness of man. When we start trying to pull those two things apart, We're going to miss out on the beautiful tension that we're intended to feel as we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Yes, we have the Spirit of God live in us, but what does the Word of God say? Put to death the deeds of the flesh. Do we do it by walking according to the Spirit? Yes, we do. And how do we do that? Through spiritual disciplines. Which means what? Which means I get my nose in the books like Daniel had his nose in the books. It takes discipline. It takes effort. We're waging war against the flesh. And we have an adversary who's trying to take us down every single day. Never forget that. Let's be praying for each other, church. Amen? Let's be praying for each other. Let's be a mighty force for good, for the gospel, in each other's lives and in this community and the places you go to work. Let's pray that God would use us to proclaim his great news. Let's pray. Father.